Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you today, that's okay. I'll have the, uh, the text on the screen. Um, Mark, chapter 6, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 7 through 32. It's a little bit longer of uh, a section than we normally have taken in the Gospel of Mark, but you'll see why that makes sense and why Mark uh, did it that way. You know, in, in June of 2017, uh, a 33-year-old rock climber named uh, Alex Hanold scaled El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. It's uh, widely considered to be the most challenging climb in the world. I, uh, that is uh, uh, El Capitan right there. It um, is about a 3,200-foot uh, straight rock of granite, and that's, um, that's very, very high. It's considered to be the most challenging in the world, and he was the first person to make the climb, what they call free solo, which means that he climbed the cliff without any ropes, without any harnesses, and without any equipment. The, uh, the climb is so difficult that at one point he was just hanging by his thumbs a thousand feet in the air. And this next picture is a picture of him, that, uh, that little red dot there. He has no harnesses, no ropes, nothing that he is going up there by. And he ended up making it up there, and uh, it, it's pretty amazing. Uh, it's a pretty amazing feat, especially when you see how far down that is. And for people that don't like heights like me... Um, that, uh, that would be terrifying. You know, for such an, an accomplished climber, you know, one that is now world famous thanks to a documentary that was done by the National Geographic called Free Solo, you'd think that he would live this lavish life. He's this famous rock climber now. But he actually lives most of the year out of his van. It's, it's a lifestyle that's called dirtbagging. And uh, he calls it an intentional choice to prioritize your vocation. And he, he was quoted as saying this, I want to climb in the best places in the world. That's my focus. So I am willing to give up having stability. That's funny for a rock climber to say that. Um, having a shower, having whatever in order to climb the way that I want. I have made clear choices about what I find value in, what risks I'm willing to take, I am doing exactly what I love to do, and it's easy for someone sitting on the couch at home to condemn it as crazy and stupid, but I can justify all my choices. Can you do the same about your life? You know, we see people that are so dedicated to their passion, so dedicated to what it is that they, that they love, that it's, it's, it's commendable, isn't it? it it's, uh, it's actually a bit inspiring. You know, I see some of the uh, entrepreneurs that are on the show Shark Tank, and some of them gave up six-figure jobs in order to start this new company that they sell soap with, and it might be crazy, but they are they're going after, they're chasing their dreams of owning their own uh, business. And, you know, it, it, in, with such people, I sometimes wonder what would it be like to be so obsessed so all in on something that you're passionate about that you are willing to give up everything for it. 
You know, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to, be, to not be sold out for something, but we're called to be sold out for someone. When Jesus draws us to himself, he asks that we would be willing to give up everything to know him and to follow him. He calls every one of us to be his disciple. And being a disciple doesn't mean just coming to church on a Sunday morning and, and learn about him. Discipleship requires that we are all in, that we are completely sold out, that we are radical followers of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage that defines what it means to be a disciple or a learner and a follower of Jesus. Through two examples, we're going to see what the glories of discipleship are and also what the uh, risks of following Jesus are. So if you're in Mark chapter 6, read along with me beginning in verse 7. This is what Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead and that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said that he is Elijah. And still others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard uh, him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. At, one, at once she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me the head of uh, John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths, and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about this, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. 
The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us today to let go of ourselves, to get over ourselves, and to live radically committed to you. Regardless of where we are in our walk of faith, Lord, would you do that work in our hearts, that we would be willing and obedient, dependent on you. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So discipleship, or following Jesus, requires sacrifice. But because of how, how great and how glorious Jesus is, and for what he has done for us, it is a joy to follow him. In this passage, we find three crucial aspects of what it means to be a disciple. And the first one that we look at today is that we must give Jesus total dependence and obedience. We must give Jesus total dependence and obedience. You know, there's this literary device, which is a way of, of writing, that a lot of biblical authors uh, like to employ. And Mark is particularly fond of this uh, because he actually does it many, many times in his gospel. The, uh, the ivory tower folks, the, the people in the universities and in the seminaries, they will use the term inclusio, but I don't typically like to use the word inclusio because that can be somewhat confusing. The term that I like to use is a biblical sandwich because I like sandwiches and sandwiches make sense uh, to me. And as you know, a sandwich is generally bracketed by, by bread and it's got uh, uh, stuff in the middle that are the contributing parts. It's got the meat, maybe the condiments, maybe the vegetables, uh, whatever it is. None of those parts work independently of themselves, but rather everything works together to uh, come to this goal of having a sandwich. Without the bread, you have a salad or a wrap. Without the, the center stuff, all you have is, is bread. And in a Bible sandwich, the author will begin to work out his thesis or his, his main point in the beginning, and uh, that's one end of the bread. He'll develop it. That'll be sort of the, the meat and the stuff that's inside it. And then he'll conclude his point by kind of going back to the beginning and showing how it all is pulled together. And, and when that comes and, and works well, it's this beautiful uh, ensemble of biblical truth. And so the idea that Mark is trying to portray to us in this passage, we can think of as a discipleship sandwich. And the top part of that sandwich is this idea that we must be obedient to the call of Christ. And in order to be obedient to the call of Christ, we must be completely dependent on Him for everything. Uh, in verse 7, Jesus gives us this impression that the disciples had been uh, taking sort of a respite. Maybe they went home, back to their jobs, back to their families for a little bit. But it says that Jesus beckoned them all. He summoned them all to come back uh, to Him but not to stay with him. Rather, Jesus had the role for a temporary assignment for them in which they would go out 
to the neighboring communities and tell people about Jesus. And he is probably doing this in order to uh, prepare them for the coming time very soon in which Jesus would no longer be around and his spirit would send them out to the uttermost parts of the world. Now, he sends them in pairs. Uh, He probably sends them for companionship, uh, probably for protection, as well as when you have two people, it serves as sort of uh, a witness, because in the Jewish mind, uh, there can't really be a believable story unless there's more than one uh, witness. He sends them with all of his authority over the demons, but he sends them essentially empty-handed. Look at me in verse 8. He instructed them, to take nothing for the road, no staff, no, uh, except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. Now, that is, it sounds pretty radical, but, but it, there's a lot of logic behind this. Jesus is testing their obedience by forcing them to trust him so fundamentally that they could not survive but by his provisions. The only things that they can take are the clothes on their back, the shoes on their feet, and the staff in their hands. And it's curious that what Jesus requires of them because it is uh, very, very similar to what Moses had instructed the Israelites to have when they escaped from Egypt during the Exodus. It is as if Uh, The seemingly insignificant charge that Jesus is giving the Israelites here is Jesus' way of saying that they are the new 12 tribes of Israel going out and calling people back to the Lord. They're to trust him completely when it comes to their lodging. Look at verse 10. He said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony to them. So in other words, if they were to be taken in or received by someone, that is where they had to stay. If Jesus' disciples were were welcomed by someone that would have been on the, the lower socioeconomic level, what would happen if a more prominent, more wealthy uh, follower of Jesus asked them to come and stay with them instead? What would that make the gospel look like? Uh, it would be very tempting to want to leave a Super 8 motel when someone is going to allow you to stay at the Ritz for free. However, Jesus would not let his disciples insult anyone in that sort of way. Christian discipleship is not a path to greater riches, more ease, comfort, or fame. It is forgetting about yourself so that you can live for others. It is uh, dying to yourself that you can live for others. Give them life, regardless of where they are economically or or socially or racially and a, a whole bunch of other things. The command to stay where you are welcomed is this, is this beautiful elevation of the poor and the forgotten. And it's also a protection of the message of the gospel. The gospel would be perverted if they used it for personal gain. 
Now, if the disciples are not welcomed, they still must trust Jesus. Jesus tells them to, to shake the dirt uh, off their feet when they're not welcomed in a certain place. It's a sign of judgment. It was a, a symbolic gesture for the Jews uh, that when they left Gentile or, or pagan areas, that they were not to have dirty dirt on them. Does that make sense? They know what dirt is, but the fact that they are uh, leaving a place of Gentile and, and pagan dogs, those people are dirty, they're unclean. We can't have anything on us that associates us with them. we got to get this dirty dirt off of us. It shows them that they're cut off from the life of God for not receiving them into their lives. Further, they're trust to, they are to trust Him completely with their purpose to preach the gospel. Look at verse 12. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. And we're going to have to push pause here for just a second because there are, I think, a lot of, of well-meaning people who profess Christ that sort of go astray when it comes to issues like this. There are ministries and there are uh, churches out there that will use the Bible, that will use the idea of Jesus in order to be healed in order to have spiritual power, in order to get rich, in order to make all kinds of wild claims. But those are instances, I think, in which the tail is wagging the dog. The point of the signs and wonders that the disciples display isn't the end, but it's the means. It is to, uh, the, these exorcism and, and healings are meant to verify the message of Jesus, to show its power, to show its validity. Now, I, I, I personally, there's a lot of debate here. Personally, I don't think that these signs and wonders exist today in order to verify the gospel. I think that's, that's why we have the, the written word now. But certainly as Christianity was, was beginning to take flight, God used these signs and wonders in order to display the power and authority of the gospel. And we must remember that these disciples had no more power and authority than you and I have. But here, they were absolutely dependent on the Lord for displaying the gospel's power among these people. And so a few, uh, these few verses... Uh, they provide an example of how Jesus' disciples must be absolutely dependent on him from their daily provisions all the way to their spiritual success and their spiritual victories. And I think that this point and our next point is uh, the most difficult for us in the West to understand. Because in our affluent society... How many of us actively trust in God to provide for every daily need? Well, there might be a couple things, but how many of us are reliant on God to make sure that there's food in the fridge? How many of us are fully reliant on God 
to have money for the electric bill. Or that you'll have clothes tomorrow. Or how are, how are we supposed to live in absolute trust when in America it seems like we have everything we need? Well, there are a couple things that, that I think we need to, that we could do. First, we need to, um, we need to be dependent on God to make us content with what we have. Be dependent on God to be content with what we have. Our heart cry in, in this culture ought to be begging God to release us from the bondage to stuff. To the way that we live. We overconsume, we overeat, we overspend, we, we overresource ourselves. Having godly content, contentedness ought to make us more generous. Do we need all of the stuff that we have? Do we need all the money that we have? Do we need all the time that we have. In our American culture alone, if every Bible-believing Christian gave just 10% of their income, this world would be evangelized and hunger would almost be eradicated. Orphans would be placed in loving homes. And what would happen if God's people took the time, the amount of time that they devoted to being on their smartphones, being on the computer, or sitting in front of the television, and used that time for kingdom work, I think Mora would be a completely different place. And I'm not saying those things are bad, but I'm saying that our priorities are completely backwards. What would happen if our church, what if Emmanuel Baptist Church stopped existing for ourselves and for our own comfort and started living for the betterment of our neighbors? Total dependence on God results in radical obedience in whatever He is calling us to. So we need to give Jesus total dependence and total obedience. But second, we must also be willing to lose everything for Jesus. We must be willing to lose it all for Him. You know, one of the most popular beliefs about Jesus over the last century or so is that Jesus is this great moral teacher that he was just this really good guy that we can learn from, but, but the Lord, God himself, he can't be that. There, there's just no way. And it would be easy to, to think that when you take certain passages of what Jesus said and, and apply it to that mindset. You know, he was the originator of the golden rule. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, he said, Whatever you want others to do to you, do also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. 
Would anyone argue with the golden rule? That's a great way to live by. What about his wisdom on, on loving your enemies and the Sermon on the Mount or, or the Beatitudes that teach us how to, how to live rightly and how to be happy in life? Jesus taught us that when we are generous towards others that we shouldn't make a big deal of it. Who likes a braggart? We ought to be humble. His teaching on not judging others, that, that's a great thing. We ought to think the best of other people. But you can't take those particular good teachings of Jesus and divorce them from some of the harder things that he said. What good and moral teacher would say to his students what he says in Matthew chapter 10? The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it, and anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. What good moral teacher teaches that? Or what about in Luke chapter 12, when he says, Anyone that acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels in heaven. Consistently, Jesus tells us that if we want to be his disciples, then we must be ready and willing to lose everything for his sake. And this is precisely why Mark introduces this story about John the Baptist in the middle of this, this Bible sandwich. Mark begins this vignette by noting how Herod the Tetrarch uh, had heard about Jesus and he was actually terrified of him. Not because of who Jesus is, but because... That because he thinks that John the Baptist has essentially been uh, reincarnated or, uh, or raised again as Jesus. He's terrified because he was responsible for the execution. And so Mark uses this story to inform his readers who were being persecuted at the time when his gospel was published. The results of radical obedience in Christ that what they are experiencing is totally normal. Now, Herod the Tetrarch was the son of Herod the Great. You've, you've read of Herod the Great before if you've read any of the Christmas narratives of Jesus. He was the one that uh, tried killing all the babies, baby boys in Bethlehem for, uh, that were two years and under. This was his son. When Herod the Great, his father, had died, uh, the area that Herod the Great reigned over was divided up into four sections. And four of his sons ruled over those four sections. That's why he's called Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch means like one-fourth, basically. And Herod the Tetrarch's story would be a fascinating story to think about leadership because here's a guy who embodies the old saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this guy was ruthless. He was, he was as wicked as his father. He had an adulterous affair 
with his half-brother's wife, Herodias, who actually happens to be the daughter of a different half-brother of his. Uh, yeah, and this is, I guess, how the Herod people did things back then. Um, his half-brother, Aristobulus, it was totally unlawful in the Jewish system. And in order to uh, make right this relationship that they had, both Herodias and Herod the Tetrarch had to divorce their wives in order to come together, which was another uh, very serious sin in the eyes of Jewish law. And this Herodias was a wicked woman, and she began her reign of terror when John the Baptist was arrested. And why was he arrested? Because he called out the sin of Herodias and Herod's relationship. Now, that alone is a mark of faithful, uh, of faithful um, obedience because it takes spiritual boldness to go before one of the most powerful people in the region and say, what you are doing is wrong. And there's reason to believe that even though he was arrested, Herod, Herod was curious about John. Look at me in verses 19 and 20. Herodias held a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she could not because Herod feared John, protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, yet he liked to listen to him. So the only way that Herodias could get rid of this troublemaker was to find an opportune time which came at Herod's birthday party. Herodias' daughter, who we know through different, uh, different ways, her name was Siloam. She danced and make no qualms about it. This was a sensual dance that she was doing for Herod and his court. The text says that it pleased him and the others that were around him, and so much so that he asked her to make a request. Make a bold request, and I'm not going to refuse you. She went to her mother to see what should I do. Her mother stepped in, asked for John's head, and much to Herod's chagrin, he obliged. John's head was brought on a platter. And why again? Because Herod... Herodias didn't like John's appraisal of her relationship. Darkness will always try to squash out the light and truth of God. And we see that here. We see that today. As Americans, we've been uh, spared up to this point from persecution I don't think that we should think that it's always going to be that way. I do think there's a day in which uh, the, church, the churches will face a government crackdown. That in order to be a faithful Christian, it will be much harder and we will feel the weight of what it means to follow Christ. Already we're seeing it with Christian bakers and photographers unwilling to compromise their beliefs. Already we're seeing it in the reaction against abortion restrictions in Georgia and Missouri we need to be ready for it. And we need to understand that this is what Christ has called us to. Our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world face this every single day. 
Brothers and sisters in Asia this morning met in secret because if the government knew what was going on, the government would not only arrest them, but also execute them for it. This is real. And we can prepare to take joy as disciples, as the disciples did when they suffered for Jesus. And many of us have, are, or will face the, sto- the social stigma of knowing Jesus. Some of us, unfortunately, have lost family and friends, people that you cared about because of your faith. I think somewhere along the line, us Christians have wanted to be too much like the world. But it's time to embrace the freakishness that comes with believing that a dead man rose from the grave and now reigns over the entire universe. People will look at us as odd. They will make fun of us for it. But we can rejoice because we know that when that happens, we have a union with Christ who suffered for us and suffers with us through his Spirit. The story of John the Baptist is pointing forward to Jesus, whose faithfulness to God the Father and the gospel put him on trial and got him executed by the state. But this is in no way denigrating to him. His sinless life, his death on the cross, was for our sake. That we would be forgiven of our sins. That we would be cleansed of our moral filth. And that we would be made new again in his likeness. In his his death, it paved the way for us who follow him. And as followers of Jesus, he tells us, that we must take up our cross, forget about ourselves, get over ourselves, and live wholeheartedly for Him, which may include suffering and death. You know, I think of stories like Cassie Bernal and and Valene Schnur, who, when faced with the Columbine killers in April of 1999, when asked whether or not they believe in God, did not waver in their faith, answered in the affirmative, and both were shot. One survived, one didn't. I wonder if I would have such bravery in situations like that. I pray that I would, and I pray that you would too. So we need to be willing to lose all for Jesus. So these first two points are, were really heavy, but the bread end of the Bible sandwich here is what makes this really sweet. Jesus tells us to thirdly rest in him. Rest in Jesus. Look with me in verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him 
all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place. You know, there's no better way to recharge, to gain spiritual strength, to uh, recenter our purpose and mission than to rest in Jesus. Oftentimes, the troubles of the day are simply too much for us to handle. We need Jesus. This rest isn't one in which we go and spiritually sit on the couch and, and put on Netflix. Right now, media, if you want to make it a spiritual metaphor. But one in which our spirit calms in the midst of the storms of life. You know, Psalm 46.10 is a, is a famous verse that's usually translated like this. Be still and know that I am God. Many of you are familiar with that, that verse. However, it doesn't just mean just chill and know who God is. I think the CSB gets the idea of that verse a little bit, uh, a little bit better when it translated as, Stop your fighting and know that I am God. It is a call to rest. It is a call to stop trying to do everything on your own. Stop thinking that even if it's incredibly difficult, that it is your job to overcome it. It's not. It is God's. Leave it to Him. Stop stressing. Stop trying to do the work that only God can do. It is exhausting to go through the Christian life on our own. We need to rest in God. We need to let go. We need to depend on Him and obey Him completely. We need to be willing to lose all for Him and trust Him with the results. You've probably heard it uh, many times before, but Jesus' words, let Jesus' words here in Matthew 11 sink in in a refreshing way this morning. He says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. Is that you? Does life seem like too much? Jesus goes on, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke or my teaching, my, my sovereignty, and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Come to him. Rest in him. You know, Alex Tenold loved rock climbing so much that he gave up much. 
He sacrificed a normal life for one that was full of danger and and adventure. His passion for climbing is, is contagious. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to perhaps a more dangerous and adventurous life. One of discipleship one of following him wherever he would leave and letting go of whatever it is that he tells us to let go of. Will you today, by faith, give Jesus total obedience and total dependence? Will you, by faith, be willing to lose everything for his sake in the sake of the gospel? And will you, by faith, rest in the one who assures us that everything that happens is under his control and therefore we don't need to be anxious about anything? Will you follow him today? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the call of Christ. And Lord, we, we recognize the weight of it, Lord. We, we know that, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that when Christ uh, calls a man, he bids him come and die. And Lord, though that is a hard pill to swallow, Lord, we ask that you would help us to be obedient and faithful servants. That as hard as it is, and as much as we need to give up or to, to work toward, that we would know that it would be worth it for your, your sake and for the gospel's sake, Father. So I pray that we who are in here today would freely say, I am all yours, Jesus. Every aspect about me, every door in my life, there is not one that is locked Uh, that is locked that you cannot get into. Lord, you have my all. You have my soul. You have my life. You have my mind. You have my spirit. You have everything. I give it to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Would you stand with us as the worship team comes forward?